We are so excited to continue to be in this series. We started off our seventh year as a church community on the West Side with this slow, meditative walk through Psalm 23 as sheep being led by the Good Shepherd. It's probably the most famous passage of scripture. It's read at funerals. It's read at hospital beds. It's read by people who just need encouragement. And we are convinced um, the pastors and everyone who's been praying for this uh, came out of this prayer night that Ryan just mentioned. We are convinced that what we need in this new year of our church is not a vision of new strategies or new programs or something like that, but we need a greater vision of who God is and the type of life that he's calling us to. And that's why we're here. That's why we're taking this slow walk through Psalm 23. So to recap, in previous weeks, we have looked at what it means that the Lord is our shepherd in the present tense, that he's leading us into a life without lack rather than giving us a roadmap for what we should expect. We just follow him. Pastor Lorenzo taught us in our second week that our relationship with the shepherd is our source of satisfaction. And so he creates the conditions for us to be able to rest because he has everything that we need. And then we learned about the restoration work of the shepherd for sheep who have wandered away. Any of you who feel like that, I have certainly. Uh, And then last week, probably one of the most challenging and yet most impactful things was what it means to walk through the depths of the dark valley this inevitable low point on the journey with our shepherd that has to be normalized. We have to expect this to happen in the life of faith for all who want to follow Jesus means we will walk through a dark valley at some point. But today we turn the page as it were, we're gonna enter kind of a new metaphor, a new uh, situation that we're being invited to in the psalm, and David kind of switches up the metaphors. So if you would stand with me as we read the entirety of Psalm 23 once again. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup, overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Pray with me. Lord, we so desperately need to understand the type of life that you're inviting us to is one in which you not only provide what we need, but you provide so much more because you desire to use us as vessels of blessing to others. You desire to pour into us abundance such that we overflow. And so I pray this morning as we look into what it means that you are 
at work as a host preparing a table before us that we would sit down with you, that we would learn from you. And Lord, for those of us who feel like we're still in the depths of the valley, Lord, that we would learn that you're inviting us to celebrate with you in spite of that. And for those of us who are ready to celebrate, Lord, I pray that we'd be drawn into deeper place of communion, of life with you, the type of life that you're inviting us to, of abundance. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. So we're at this turning point in the psalm where we've just been imagining ourselves as cute little sheep wandering for a few weeks now with our shepherd leading us through the darkest valley, using his rod and his staff. And I don't know about you, but I definitely uh, feel the, the, like, a lot more like a sheep than I did about four weeks ago. Um, I can resonate with what it means to be skittish, to be afraid, to know that I need help. Uh, but what's interesting is David, the King David, who we all know from the Bible, David and Goliath, the one who's writing this psalm, who was in fact a shepherd, who knows all the intricacies of what it means to take lost sheep and bring them home and to guard them and stuff like that. He switches the metaphor in the middle of the psalm from a sheep and a shepherd to a host inviting a guest to sit down at the table. And there are a lot of commentators and scholars who say, no, he's still talking about sheep here and the table is kind of like a flat place uh, on a mountain where like sheep can eat and like he's trying to protect them from enemies that are like lurking in the bushes and stuff like that. Yeah, maybe. Um, but David is writing from Israel. There is no geographical terrain where there's like a flat bed of, of stuff on a mountain for sheep to eat. And so we actually just want to sit with the fact that he's changing up the metaphor for a reason. And when somebody, when a writer or a poet or somebody changes up the metaphor in the middle, it's not because they just don't know what to say. It's because they're actually inviting you to listen closer. They're, in, they're mixing up the metaphors to say like, what is he actually saying here? The shift in metaphors invites us to play, pay closer attention, to become participants in this, in this song in a new way. We have here, after wandering through the darkest valley, being led by this shepherd, this counterintuitive and paradoxical provision of God and blessing when it looks like we should have no reason to be thankful at all. As if you're walking through the desert and there's suddenly an oasis. If you've noticed, it tends to be people who have less material wealth who tend to be the most grateful people. It's also, I've noticed, that people who have endured the most hardship tend to have a deeper life of faith. Um, it's, it's cliche, but it's been said, you don't know that God is all you need until God is all you have, right? And people who have walked these journeys through the deepest valley have experienced exactly what that means. And I'm, I'm teaching here as someone who hasn't walked through deeper valleys than some of my friends when, again, when I was talking about my wife just like crying when she sees somebody, one of our friends who's like, the deepest uh, encouragement to us is somebody who over the last several years walked through tremendous loss of both her husband and her father to cancer. And yet 
she walks closely with Jesus and you look at her face and if you don't know the backstory to her life, you're like, oh, this is just a very peaceful person. But it is a per- she's a person who has been tremendously formed by walking through this valley and yet knowing that her shepherd is, has a, a life of abundance prepared for her on the other side. So the cliche, you don't know God is all you need until God is all you have, is more true than cliche. And don't get me started on cliches. I think cliche is actually just a word to invite us uh, into cynicism. Um, If you like think about all the cliches that you think are a cliche, it's actually just so true that it's true, okay? So like things that that are cliche are just like cynicism waiting for you to like not believe in the truth. Don't get me started, anyway, um, okay. We've experienced different challenges, different valleys, shallow or deep to varying degrees. So rather than compare hardships, we are invited to see that God is the shepherd of both shallow and deep valleys. And he's the kind of shepherd who does more than provide shelter or protection for his sheep. He provides blessing and abundance. So when we've endured the darkest valley, when we've stopped striving for life on our own terms and have opened ourselves up to the life that our shepherd has for us. We have the potential to receive abundant life on the other side, resurrection life on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death. This abundant life is only possible because the shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. That is what we learned last week that the shepherd, Jesus, makes this life possible because he walked through the valley himself when he endured the cross for us. Our shepherd took on the darkness so that we can have his abundant life. But just because our shepherd took this for us doesn't mean that we now experience complete joy and utter abundance. We are also still walking through the valley ourselves at times. It is a now and a not yet reality. The shift uh, is into present tense verbs. Before it was speaking to God in the third person. Last week it moved to speaking to God in the second person, you. And this week it repeats it as well. You prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. So now we are able to experience this abundant life that God has for us, but there's no mistaking that it hasn't fully come yet because there are still enemies. Read with me again, verse five. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. It's kind of apropos because we're getting ready to celebrate Thanksgiving in just a couple weeks, right? So as this table is being prepared, it's it's one of the few times in our culture when an elaborate feast is central to the celebration and all of these traditional elements of a Thanksgiving feast have their own history of like why they were included and why they were traditional. But my family has kind of started to like hate on the turkey I don't know if you guys resonate. Like, there's so many people that I've talked to recently who are just like, who likes turkey? Like, turkey, some turkey haters? Okay, 
Scott still likes turkey. Anyone here like, no way, we're having surf and turf? Yeah? Come on. So you're out there, because I've talked to you. I know I'm not the only one standing up here. My family had brisket last year for Thanksgiving, and it was bomb, okay? But turkey is significant. It has this historical connection to the celebration of Thanksgiving. And we kind of like deconstruct traditions as it comes, which is like itself a new tradition. But each element has the, I digress. Um, Each element of the Thanksgiving feast has the story of how it became part of the celebration, like the turkey, the cranberry sauce, the stuffing, yams, and uh, green bean casserole, or pumpkin pie, right? Which we're all now hungry for lunch. But It's kind of similar to this dining table that's placed before us today in this verse. Each of the elements that we just read about that is placed before us is rich with imagery that weaves throughout the entire narrative of Scripture. The table, speaking of provision from God, the anointing oil, speaking of hospitality or welcome, or the cup that's flowing over with more than we need, speaking of God's abundance. Each of these elements deserves like a full like book length, but we're gonna try to unpack some of the significance today. So imagine you were invited to Thanksgiving at the house of some important person that you admire. It's a celebrity in town. It could be like to the White House Thanksgiving. It's like really elaborate kind of thing. And you walk in and you just notice like the attention to detail is astounding. It's like ornate table settings and someone takes your coat and offers you a drink before you even step in through the threshold of the door. And you kind of like brought a bottle of wine to share and you were like really proud of your choice initially, but then you realize that they've already got that covered with much better wine than you could ever bring. And you like feel out of place and you're kind of like, I don't deserve to be here, right? How did I get invited to this thing anyway? I bet everyone else is wondering the same thing. Who invited that guy? He's out of place. He doesn't belong here. And the host kind of welcomes you and tries to make you feel at home. But the more generous and hospitable they are towards you, the more you recoil because you realize you did nothing to earn the invitation. Anyone else ever felt that way? (laughs) Just me? Okay, cool. Um, Like, it must be a mistake. Why am I here? What do you do? Do you leave before you do or say something stupid? <laughs> do you like try to help out to make yourself feel like worthy of the invitation? Any other Enneagram twos in here? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I'm going in the kitchen. I'm going to help serve and stuff like that. And you end up breaking something and it's awful. So there's a lot of ways that we could feel out of place at an elaborate banquet setting. But there are, there are two twin enemies that prevent us from enjoying the type of life that God would have for us, this abundant life as a gift from God. And they are two forms of pride. First, there is arrogant pride. And second is self-conscious pride. Self-conscious pride is what you might have felt in that hypothetical scenario. I didn't earn this, and now I feel unworthy and out of place. And it appears on the surface to be humility, but it's actually self-centered because it prevents you from enjoying the feast and you're focused on yourself. Arrogant pride is more common and it is the feeling of superiority that you get when you're invited 
to maybe a Thanksgiving dinner that you think is beneath you. So you say, thanks for the invite, but I'll let you know. Um, <laughs> but you're really just waiting for a better invitation that might come along later that's more worthy of your stature. Um, and this is partly why we don't commit to plans in LA anymore because we have FOBO. Uh, I said FOBO because it's fear of better offer, um, not FOMO, right? So like not committing to plans with people is because you're like, I'm cold, holding out for something a little bit more my taste, right? Um, yeah, that's why your friend cancels on you, just so you know. <laughs> um, what prevents us from receiving life as a gift from God? On the one hand, it's the belief that we deserve more than we have. And on the other, it's the belief that we don't deserve what we've already been given. In the garden, at the beginning of the story of scripture, humanity was offered a seat at God's table. Our origin story as a species is that God planted a garden overflowing with abundant resources that contained more than we could ever need. The fruit of any tree was available to us and we rejected the feast that God had prepared for us because of the enemy who deceived us into believing that we deserve something that God wasn't offering us. God is holding out on you. Everything was given to us, completely undeserved, and yet we were tempted to believe that we were being denied access to a better meal somewhere else, a better banquet. And this initial fracture of our relationship with God damaged our ability to trust in the shepherd's care, that God's intentions for us are actually good, that we truly lack nothing because he is willing to provide anything. And today it's possible for us to miss out on the feast that God offers us by either believing that he's holding out on us or that we're too damaged to receive it. But the life that we are offered through following Jesus is actually one of abundance. So here's the point. Enduring the dark moments following the shepherd through the valley enables us to now receive the abundant provision that he has given to us and he wants to give to us in spite of our circumstances, in spite of what we deserve, we are well provided for, we are welcomed to the feast and we are abundantly blessed at great cost to God himself. So first, you prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. This is paradoxical provision. The table that it's speaking of here is a common tradition in ancient Near Eastern times and even some uh, Middle Eastern cultures today, which is a tradition that is all about a generous king or ruler demonstrating how wealthy they are. When a wealthy ruler wanted to display the splendor of their kingdom and of their riches, they didn't have like MTV cribs, okay? They didn't have like, open up my garage and here's like a Bentley for every mood that I'm in. It's a different color. Um, the rulers didn't have stuff like that. Rather, they would invite everyone that they knew to elaborate banquets. And that was their flex. That was like, I could provide a meal for you guys that's so elaborate and so ornate and it never ends. In, in the book of Esther in the Old Testament, the king of Persia planned a banquet that lasted for 180 days. 
yes, amen, right? <laughs> Let's do it. But that was, his, that was his way of saying, like, not I'm so generous, but come and look at how wealthy I am. Table preparation had nothing to do with plates and flatware. It was actually wine and an abundance of wine. And you would sit on this low table on this rug, and the way that you ate was actually by tearing off portions of bread and dipping it in whatever was being served. So preparing a table really looked more like giving somebody a slice of bread to dip into their meal. And when you imagine who is hosting the dinner party in the ancient Near East, you would normally think of the person throwing the dinner party, this elaborate feast as a ruler or a king or a wealthy person. But in that culture, the people who would actually be serving the meal are the women of the house. They would come over and make sure that everybody has what they need. And while it may have been the rulers who threw their parties to put their wealth on display, it was the women in the society who prepared the meal. But here in this psalm, it is God doing both. God who is neither male nor female, God who is spirit and created both male and female in his image, both hosts the party and provides the resources for the party. But it is a table that is prepared in a very strange circumstance. It is a table that is prepared in the presence of David's enemies. This meal is consumed in enemy territory. And there's a lot of scholars that kind of like debate and disagree about what he's talking about with these enemies. They could potentially be people who David as a king has like conquered and now has to sit and watch him eat his victory feast. Um, it's possibly that he's kind of still tapping into the shepherd metaphor here where God's protection enables him to slow down and have the meal even though there are like predators lurking around. And it's also possible that he's so confident in God's power that he's actually able to invite his enemies to the banquet to participate in him because he's not worried about what they might do. There are so many instances that David, as the author of this psalm, could be reflecting on when God actually did exactly this thing for him. One of them is that after being uh, declared the true king of Israel by the prophet Samuel, he was actually in exile and hunted by the now defunct king of Israel, Saul, who was seeking David's life because of jealousy. And there was this moment when he was on the run, his enemies literally pursuing him, and he comes to the place where God's tabernacle was, where the priests would always administer the blessings and stuff like that. And there was this special bread inside of the tabernacle that only the priests were supposed to eat. And David on the run actually got to eat some of that bread in the presence of his enemies. So he could be thinking about that. There was another time when he was, had been king for quite a while when his own son, Absalom, staged an uprising and tried to overthrow him and he was exiled yet again on the run. And when he came to a village of people that could have sided with his enemy, instead of siding with his son Absalom, they threw him a banquet. <laughs> So David had plenty of instances to draw from when he was thinking about what does it mean that God is able to provide for me in spite of any circumstance. David seems to be reflecting on his confidence that God's ability to provide is not dependent on his circumstances. 
that you could think of the most challenging possible circumstance in his life, literally being on the run from enemies trying to pursue you, and God is still able to provide what he needs. This is in stark contrast to what happened in the story of the people of Israel, who, if you know the story, they were rescued from slavery in Egypt from a tyrannical king called Pharaoh, and they were walking through the wilderness on the way to the promised land that God was going to provide for them. And in the midst of the wilderness, what happened was that they grumbled for food because God was providing all of this kind of miraculous provision for them, but they still wanted what they had back in Egypt. God was literally raining down bread from heaven and they were grumbling because they didn't have everything that they missed about being slaves in Egypt. And in Psalm 78, it tells us about this time. It says, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food that they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? And David's reply to this question would be, absolutely yes. And it's happened to me. And this is hard for us to resonate with because very few of us are ever in a position where we don't know where our next meal is coming from, right? Jesus, in his uh, teaching about how to pray, when his disciples asked him, how are we supposed to pray, instructed his disciples to pray, give us this day, our daily bread. And for those of you who might be like me, when you pray that, you kind of go like, Lord, give me my daily bread, which I know exactly where it's gonna come from because I'm gonna walk down to the corner and I'm gonna get a sandwich. That's where my daily bread's going to come from because we're actually not that dependent on God for our daily provisions as we should be. And it betrays that we don't really know or acknowledge that our provision truly comes from God. David Benner, an author, comments on this reality. He says, most of us so excel at ensuring our own ongoing supply of life's provisions that we find the idea of having to come back for daily bread offensive. But God invites us to abandon our neurotic displays of self-sufficiency. Ouch. He invites us to surrender our stolen independence and exchange it for a willingly accepted dependence. Again, it bears repeating, David's perspective right now, saying this verse, he prepares a table, is his perspective that's been shaped by walking through life's most challenging circumstances. His perspective that God can provide abundantly for him in any circumstance has come through walking through those challenging circumstances, knowing that God will always provide what he needs. But we don't have to walk through the wilderness to rediscover this truth. God is inviting us today to discover how he can paradoxically provide for us in any circumstance. Similarly, he welcomes us to the feast with paradoxical hospitality. He says, you anoint my head with oil. Now, there are a lot of reasons in ancient culture, in ancient Near Eastern culture, why somebody would be anointed with oil. What we would normally think of 
is when somebody becomes a priest or a king or a prophet in the Bible, when somebody assumes that position or that role, they're anointed with oil as a symbol of saying you, you're being blessed and God is giving you this position to function in this way. In fact, uh, Jesus, you know, his title, which is Christ, which often people think is his last name, which is not. Christ is a title that means anointed, Mashiach in Hebrew. He's been given this role to serve his people and to be their king. So there's this messianic implications of anointing. And David himself, writing the psalm, was anointed by the prophet Samuel for kingship before he ever was king. But the type of anointing that he's speaking of here is not for anointing for a purpose or for a service. It's rather the anointing of welcome. There is an ancient custom where if you prepared an elaborate feast and there was a guest of honor, they would come in and you would anoint their head with perfumed oil to symbolize that they were welcome in your home. Who was invited to a table was a very big deal in ancient Near Eastern culture. It symbolized that person having all of your favor being welcomed into your home. And it was believed by the religious elite within Jesus's day that in order to keep your life devoted to God, you had to keep yourself separate from common people to not invite them into your home. And Jesus, consistently flipped that narrative by choosing instead to single out the people who knew they didn't deserve a seat at the table and invite them to eat with him. There are so many great examples of this in the New Testament. I had a really hard time choosing which one to point out, but I want to read one that really illustrates what we're talking about here. In Luke chapter seven, Jesus is invited to the home of one of the religious elite of his day, a Pharisee named Simon. Luke chapter seven says, then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with her perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him. Remember, he said that to himself. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one who forgave more. You've judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, 
but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. The one who recognized that she didn't deserve to be there is the one who welcomes Jesus. Rather than becoming pridefully self-conscious, this woman took what was most valuable to her and anointed Jesus' feet to welcome him into her life. And in turn, he forgives her sin and welcomes her into the flock of the good shepherd. See, it can either be our high estimation of ourselves or low estimation of ourselves that prevents us from accepting God's invitation to his table. Simon, this religious leader, thought that he was receiving the honor by welcoming this traveling rabbi into his home, but because he thought he deserved an audience with Jesus, it prevented him from realizing what it truly means to welcome Jesus into his life is to recognize the depth of his need for forgiveness. The woman knew that she didn't deserve to be there. And yet, rather than becoming pridefully self-conscious, she recognized the invitation that Jesus was giving. This intimate welcome into a relationship with God that only required her to admit that she, in truth, had nothing to offer. And yet, what did she do? She offered everything. That is the paradox of God's welcome. God's hospitality is that he would invite anyone to his table who is willing to admit that they have nothing to offer to be there. And yet in turn, he calls us to extend that same invitation to others, which leads us to the third point, which is paradoxical prosperity. My cup overflows. This image speaks of like a, a server at a restaurant who keeps filling your cup when you're not looking, right? You ever had that experience where like, you go to a restaurant and you actually realize that you drank more wine than you thought you did because the server keeps coming back and, no, just me, cool, okay. Um, the image of abundant wine, this overflowing amount of wine from a cup is an image that is often referred to in the Hebrew scriptures of a time when God would come as king and there would be abundant wine flowing from the hills from the vineyards of all of the vineyards of Israel, they would produce so much wine that we didn't know what to do with it. This reminds us of a, a miracle that Jesus did, one of the first miracles that Jesus did in the town of Cana at a wedding when they had run out of wine and Jesus told his, his disciples to fill six giant jars of water, which he then turned into wine. And it turned out to be the best wine than anybody and that at wedding had ever had in their lives. Yes, Jesus cares about wine. <laughs> and good wine. This image of overwhelming abundance shows 
that God's kingdom, when God brings his blessing into our lives, it is overflowing, it is abundant. So I have what I need in verse one of Psalm 23 turns into, I have way more than I could ever know what to do with. And nothing has changed between verse one and verse five. The amount of provision that God is willing to give his people has not changed. But as we walk with the shepherd, we realize just how much he is able and willing to provide for us. And our perspective shifts. We focus, our focus on our own needs shifts to a desire to have God's overwhelming, abundant blessing flow from ourselves to others around us. This is far from like the prosperity teaching that you'll hear in certain churches who ensure people that they'll be blessed by God if they give generously enough. This is not that at all. The sacrificial, sacrificial mentality of overflowing abundance can only be cultivated by those who have walked through the deepest, darkest valley with God and know that their shepherd can provide everything that they truly need. But there, there are two images in the Hebrew scriptures of an overflowing cup. One is a cup of abundance that shows God's blessing and provision that he wants to give to all people who would receive his invitation. And the other one is known as the cup of God's wrath. In Psalm 75, it says, there is a cup in the Lord's hand full of wine, blended with spices, and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. This heavy image is a metaphor for what happens when those who have rejected God's hospitality, when those who have instead perpetuated injustice and sin, finally get what they deserve. Recognizing that they are actually God's enemies rather than being the ones that he's trying to provide the feast for. But what's scandalous is that when Jesus came, he actually drank that cup for us. We were the ones who deserved to drink that cup of God's wrath, and yet Jesus is the one who drinks it on our behalf. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, hours before he would give up his life on a cross, he prayed in Luke chapter 22, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus wants for every one of us sitting here today, this overflowing, abundant life where we have more than we could possibly know what to do with for the purpose of blessing others. But we need to acknowledge that in order to provide that life, he gave up his own. He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. Life to the full must first be given up. In verse five, it is God doing all of the action. If you notice that, it says, you prepare a table, you anoint my head, and my cup overflows. 
the life that we're invited to in following Jesus on the other side of the dark valley is one of purely receiving. The provision that we need the most is not what we can earn, but must be received as a gift. God's grace comes to us not in response to our worthiness or our effort, but in, as a result of his victory alone. And that makes it taste so much sweeter when you know you did nothing to deserve it. This victory meal that God won over his enemies can only be enjoyed by receiving God's grace and admitting or remembering that we were his enemies before we trusted in Jesus. There's no neutrality here. We can either follow the, the shepherd or remain this lost sheep rebelling against God's goodness, trying to provide life on our own terms when he's offering us everything. So what is there left for us to do? First, it's simply to receive the life that Jesus promises us. This meal that is prepared was prepared at great cost to our host. When Jesus came and was about to give up his life on the cross, he had one final meal with his disciples where they sat down at a table together. In Luke chapter 22, it says, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. Jesus, sitting in the presence of his enemy, of the one who would betray him, took the meaning of this ancient Passover meal, celebrating victory over Israel's enemies, and explained how this table, these elements, had actually been in the works of preparation by God for thousands of years, and that was the moment that they would be fulfilled this sacrificial lamb and this bread and this wine representing the body and the blood of this lamb that was sacrificed so Israel could go free was actually the body and blood of Jesus, the perfect lamb of God. His blood was spilled to make a place at the table for us. So to prepare a table for us, God offers himself. Or as K.J. Ramsey said, God in Christ made himself into a paradox. Paradox is the only table large enough to hold truth. Communion, what we're about to receive in a few moments, celebrates that God prepared a table with the body and blood of the good shepherd, Jesus, who laid his life down for the sheep and now Our defeated enemies have no power to interfere as we receive the meal that truly nourishes our souls on an ongoing basis. But it doesn't end there because not only do we receive this abundant life, we also release it. 
once again, our cup overflows with blessing because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. We receive the provision of his body and blood and his, his anointing and his blessing to not just hoard it for ourselves, but to go out and do likewise, to be a blessing to others, to give ourselves sacrificially for our neighbors, for our enemies, for people who don't know that God is inviting them to have a seat at the table, to go out into enemy territory, inviting our enemies to participate in the banquet because we know we didn't deserve an invitation to begin with. And yet we were sought out by our shepherd who gives us the freedom to look at others with compassion, to look at people in any situation either in prideful arrogance or prideful self-consciousness and say, God wants you at his dinner table. Our cup overflows with blessing and we can be blessings to others because we truly lack nothing. We are not concerned with running out when a God who overflowingly fills our cup when we're not looking is ready to pour more blessings into our life. As author Dorothy Day says, the best things to do with the best things in life, is to give them away. At Collective Church, we often talk about what it means to become a responsible steward of the blessings that God has given us. And that language of stewardship means that you are actually entrusted with something to be given away and used for the benefit of others. Think of all of the things in your life that you know God has blessed you with and not only be grateful for those things, but recognize that they're not only for you. They were meant for the benefit of others. Stewardship means becoming like caterers at God's meal. It's so much easier to steward what we have to bless other people when our perspective is that God is the one who fills our cup to begin with. So some of the practices that we have invited our whole community into over this time uh, can be found on our church website at collectivechurch.com slash current series. These practices help us walk into God's feast and to not only sit down at the table, but offer that blessing to others as well. I don't know whether you or your discipleships have already done these two, but the two that really work for this, um, this Sunday for receiving the abundant life that God wants for us is either feasting or generosity. Feasting is really great because we're like really close to Thanksgiving now. And if you guys haven't already decided to do a Friendsgiving with your neighborhood dinner, with your discipleship group or something like that, just spend time with people in this community and celebrate what God has given you, knowing that your daily bread, the provisions that he's given you, actually comes from him and not you working for it. Counterintuitive, amazing. Um, our neighborhood dinner is doing a Friendsgiving. If you don't already have a neighborhood dinner, you're welcome to come. It's at my house. Just ask me where it is. Um, the second practice is generosity. And this can be a perspective when we know that what God has poured into our life is not only for our benefit, for, but for the benefit of others around us. What would it look like to invite your enemies to your table this Thanksgiving? To an extend an invitation or a gesture of hospitality to someone that you would naturally be opposed to eating with? 
knowing that that's actually God's will for you to steward the things that he's given you for the purpose of others. So we allow God's blessings to overflow from us. But finally, the invitation to us is actually to respond to the invitation of our host to sit down at the table. If you are here this morning and you have not actually accepted the invitation to sit down at God's table, this invitation is open to anyone who would trust in Jesus. He doesn't force it on you. To respond to God's invitation, we first have to invite him into our lives to take his rightful place. Or as he says in the book of Revelation, see, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Let's pray.